Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Karen Wilde. Karen is an author and a freelance writer living in South Australia. She was the winner of the 2020 Dorothy Hewitt Award for an unpublished manuscript, and that manuscript is now the novel that we're going to be discussing today. It's called Where the Fruit Falls. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gundungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to those lands, stolen lands, lands that were never ceded. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture, as is the radio show, but this is an opportunity to share full-length conversations, the bits that don't go on air, uh, the funny bits, the heartbreaking bits, uh, the deep analysis of the books. If you want to help other people discover Australian books and stories, you can tell them, grab their phone. Show them where the podcast is. Give us a rating. Leave a comment. I love hearing from you. I love knowing who's listening and what you're enjoying. Your ratings, your comments, it all helps put Vinyl Draft in front of more eyes in the podcast world. Let's people know that we're out there. Now, today on the show, Where the Fruit Falls is an epic narrative chronicling four generations of a family across the 20th century. The novel centers on a young Aboriginal woman, Bridget Devlin, and her daughters, Maggie and Victoria. Bridget leaves her home following a willy-wag tale to her one true love. Her journey takes her across diverse and changing landscapes, showing her her country and the lands of her kin, but also reveals the hate and the fear that has torn those families apart. As Bridget continues to walk in search of love, family and identity, she must also discover the connections that have always existed inside herself. Join me as we discover Karen Wilde's Where the Fruit Falls. Karen, welcome. Welcome back. Hi. Good to be back. It is exciting to be discussing this. Um, it is just a tremendous novel. Where the Fruit Falls chronicles generations of a family. It centres on a young Aboriginal woman, Bridget Devlin, and her daughters, Maggie and Victoria. Bridget sets off from home following a willy wagtail. She travels across a diverse and changing landscape in search of love, family, and identity. Karen, in your author's note, at the end of the book, you invite non-Indigenous readers to reflect upon perceptions, myths, biases, and worldviews that often unconsciously filter how we read and respond to works of fiction. Now, there is so much incredible work being done out there across this country on ideas of decolonization and practices, and particularly around education and narrative. But I've got to acknowledge, like, I'm still a, a student in the, the thought around this realm. I'm really early on in my journey. But I noticed immediately as I was reading and I was trying to, you know, conceive of how I might even summarize this, this incredible story that I was grasping for kind of genres and tropes that were familiar to me that were probably coming uh, potentially from a space that you weren't coming from. So I wanted to start off with how you characterize your book and what did you hope from readers of Where the Fruit Falls? Okay, big question to start with. <laughs> I always um, start with the big questions. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand also what you're saying there because um, my short time as a book reviewer when I was doing freelance reviewing, I had to sort of stop a lot and think, well, how am I reading this? Am I, am I reading this? through my own lens and my own biases. And so it got me thinking. And it's a conversation also that myself and Amberlyn Quay-Malini recently talked to with Elfie from Westerly, and that will be in this edition of Westerly, if people want to pick that up. 
talking about, you know, how do we read, how do we review, what lens do we use? And as far as genre goes, when I was in writing that book, I don't, I don't think of genre when I write. I don't think a lot of writers would. Uh, genres, yeah, it's a hit and miss thing. And we need it because we, we need to understand where our book fits in the market. But I don't think it's good to squeeze yourself into genres too much. And that leads on to what I'm studying as a master student at um, UTS. Like I'm looking at magic realism. Um, it's it's used as a literary device because it's not a genre. So I've had to think about these things a lot. And when I went, when I was doing the structural edit of that book, because I wrote that book a long time ago, and when I was doing the structural edit this year, I did have to go in there and and think differently as I read it. And two of the things I thought about were have I got the consistency of magic realism correct throughout it? Does it flow from, you know, the book's almost in two separate voices, two separate sections, and has it flowed to both those parts? And the second thing was that how are other people going to read this and have I written it in a way where I'm not going to be misrepresented, whether people will read it and think I've written something I shouldn't be writing without the proper cultural um, permission. Other than that, I don't want to put too much rules on writers, I mean readers, on how they read it and what they get from it. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think I probably as much wanted to acknowledge the process that I was going through in that question. I mean, straight away you open the book and we meet Maeve. And in that opening sort of 15, 20 odd pages, we learn a little bit about Maeve's story. And uh, the first thing that pops into my mind is, you know, you've, you've started with this kind of idea of a diaspora store. Maeve has, has arrived from um, Ireland. And then I realized, no, that's not, that's a, that's not a frame I can necessarily put on this. Bridget's journeys and then in turn uh, Maggie and Victoria's journey can look a little bit like a quest narrative but then again that's that's a narrative and a genre with its own rules which is not quite what you were Mm -hmm. doing and it was this really active process that I was engaging in to to acknowledge where my brain was going in my reading but then also pull it back a little bit and try and read what you were writing, not what I was hearing. We've gotten into a, a very con- con- kind of convoluted postmodern uh, uh, discussion here, and maybe we'll jump straight back into the book because this is an epic. It spans multiple generations, although focusing mm-hmm. on a particular period through the 60s and 70s. I wondered what was important to you in telling the story that readers understand both Bridget and her daughter's stories from this longer perspective, from this, this sort of longer view. I think that. The beauty of having a longer view and doing it through a saga is that you can highlight the interconnectedness between not just generations, but also the actions of other people and, and history itself. Like, there's a lot of history shoved into that book and a lot of it's subtle and, you know, some people may not, may not pick up like, oh, you know, that cloud is, is the atomic testing at Maralinga or, wow, someone just walked on the moon and, so there's little subtle bits about history and I think that that's in there to tie it all together because the micro and the macro are all tied together. But this idea of quest too that you talked about, I think, you know, everybody in there has their own quest while there's the bigger quest is Bridget and her daughters. A lot of the people that she meets have been on their own quest and, and they bump up against each other. 
I was really interested, and I'm glad you brought up history because I I noticed these nods. Some of them I, I picked straight away. Others I thought, I, I know you're doing something here, and I had to do a little bit of historical research <laughs> myself to understand the context. But I was really intrigued in the yep. way this history was – if if not peripheral, it was it wasn't exactly in the foreground for Bridget in her story at, at all times. Was there an element there that you were looking to the way uh, perhaps Australia as a nation, Australia in the twentieth century, was very outward looking? When perhaps as Bridget is, we needed to be perhaps a little bit more inward looking at our own history and and what was going on with our own history. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the core functions of magic realism as a device in that it enables the writers to talk about the big picture, the the history, but from the characters' everyday lives. That's what magic realism does. But, I mean, it, I think if we look at lives, we've all lived through eras of big historical events, but most of the time they don't hit us. They're just out there. It depends on how much we absorb those things. So, of course, she wasn't absorbing those things. She was just on her own quest. And I think, you know, slowly her daughters started absorbing some of those things um, and getting politically active. Um, active. And, and that was probably the time, too. Like, perhaps it was easier in the 60s and 70s to get active than what it was previously. So many things I want to ask you. Maybe, maybe we need to make a bit more of a direct um, acknowledgement of magic realism as you've been speaking about it, and and look at how uh, that works. And I want to come again back to the beginning of the story where Bridget mm-hmm. is told by her grandmother that um, she's taught the language of birds, or or Maeve tries to teach her, and instructs Bridget to to take note of a willy wagtail. And Bridget follows that willy wagtail mm-hmm. until she meets her true love, Daniel. Daniel was stolen mm-hmm. from his family. He continues in his search for them. And that's something that Bridget can't follow him on. And it's a recurring no. struggle that you bring up for Bridget. And Daniel names this as you don't accept your own blackness. Can we understand there Bridget's struggle um, as part of a larger story about First Nations people's overcoming those generations of trauma at the hands of whites, diminishing culture, telling them their blackness was other Mm -hmm. and was somehow lesser. And with her, it came from a a misguided point of love. Like, you know, her her grandmother didn't dislike her, didn't hid that from her out of a point of love. And and we know that's wrong, but that actually happens and it still happens um, through, like, um, where, where people aren't brought up in family from, from the, their own culture. So I think within that, the book itself, I mean, there's a lot of different characters that repeat the same, the same struggle where because of different things that have happened in history, um, they've been separated from family. And so they've not only had to find their own family, but they've had to find themselves, their identity. So, I mean, there's a lot of different stories in there. I mean, Bridget herself wasn't stolen generation, of course. Like her, her father was a black vicar and died in World War Two, but her 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 white family had no idea how to help her uh, grow to understand herself and understand her culture. 
again, this is such a rich novel and I, I wish I was more organized, but everything you're saying is directing me in several different avenues. I want to follow that idea of, of the way the birds operate in the family because that really taps into the ideas of magic realism that you have discussed in their travels, Bridget and the twins, they're they're frequently guided by birds. Um, they also uh-huh. they also encounter wisdom from family who have died. Bridget is visited by seven sisters who are both familiar to her yet very ethereal. Now these elements uh-huh. these elements of the story they felt very natural in in the reading of them, uh-huh. but they also they transcended my understanding of the natural world. These were not these are not things that I experience. I've got some beautiful birds outside my window occasionally, but they never seek to guide me anywhere. Uh-huh. Can you tell me a little bit more about that operation of magic realism? Because I know in your in your thesis you're you're looking at how it is, operates to articulate time, to articulate belonging, and also country in Aboriginal uh-huh. author texts. The birds all the different uses of birds, I wouldn't put all of them into that category of magic realism. Some of them are just realism, right? And this, again, is something that I'm studying now in my master's, the difference between Aboriginal realism and Aboriginal authentic magic realism. There is a difference. Mm. And so I think the birds in that show some of that difference because birds are part of culture, not just Aboriginal culture. I mean, if you look at uh, cultures around the world, you need in Celtic culture, birds, birds are there. Um, so that's not magic realism, but other parts of the birds in there are magic realism. And I'm trying to think one, for example, <laughs> perhaps perhaps um, the man in the park and the birds that, that come down and, and fly and land on him um, are a little bit magic realism. And, and more so um, Maggie's collection of, of feathers um, fits into magic realism, but not. Not all, not all occurrences like that fit into magic realism. No, is that then? I mean, I think I've probably encountered a problem there that I, I talked about at the beginning of our interview in my reading, and and something that we we see quite generally. This idea I've I've confused magic realism with elements of, as you said, Aboriginal realism, and I've kind of conflated them, and that seems to me a feature in our society as we. As we, as a country, and especially in the aftermath of the the bushfires, the the horrible bushfires mm-hmm. from a year ago, there was a huge discussion ignited around uh, traditional um, understandings, traditional fire practices, Aboriginal cosmologies, Aboriginal science, things that were mm. d- denied, ignored, suppressed, whatever word you want to mm-hmm. use. But I, I feel like in in the popular so and and by that we can read white discussion around this there was probably an undercurrent of but isn't some of that just kind of you know hogwash superstition and any Uh any sufficient (laughs) there's there's that quote around any sufficiently advanced technology looks indistinguishable from from magic uh to sort of an ignorant observer and i feel like the some of the white discussion very much echoed that um that ignorance yeah the magic and magic realism isn't magic. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it could probably be called many other things. It's not magic, though. Magic realism is, is quite based in the realism, based in science. Um, but the moments of magic are those incredible moments that we occasionally have in life. I mean, everyone's had them. I mean, surely you've gone for a walk and all of a sudden everything is hyper and mm. the colours are brighter and, and you just have this, incredible feeling 
I mean, that's that's the magic. The magic is those fractures in our normal lives. Going back to what you said also, is that I think, you know, this wraps back into the genre, like sometimes when people read different works and by an author not from the same uh, background, they, they do have this urge to put labels on like mythology or something like that or specific when it's not. It's, it's realism and it's just because they're not used to reading outside of their own background. Um, but with, with birds, I mean, if we go back to the birds, the idea of birds is that, um, you know, and I think like everybody somewhere way back in their background comes from a culture where the respect and connections with non-human others was a lot stronger than what it is now. And, and that can, that can be captured again. It doesn't have to be mythologized. It can just be, you know, a, a better understanding of nature and, and how we live with nature. It sounds a little bit like what you're talking here, and uh, is is a, a sufficient position or stature of humility when we encounter something that that maybe we don't immediately, we can't immediately pass into our our own understanding. We have to sort of be there mm-hmm. with it long enough. To let us let ourselves understand and not just dismiss things as as supernatural or um, something that is isn't worth our notice. Sure, sure, and, and sometimes we don't need to understand. We just need to 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 be there to to experience that. Now, in, not everything needs a label. <laughs> yeah, in um. Oh, and I'm going to fall into that trap now and probably start labelling things. And, um, I, I noticed, <laughs> I noticed throughout Bridget and Maggie and Victoria's journeys, the the family visit a range of towns and and mm. and places, and within particularly the towns, the populations are split. Now, this obviously reflects a reality of the racist history where Aboriginal people were forced onto the outskirts of townships into settlements. Mm-hmm. In the story, though, I noticed that these areas on the fringe, if I can um, sort of use that word mm-hmm. in scare quotes, they only look mm-hmm. to be on the fringe from within these smaller white spaces. However, when Bridget actually visits mm. these areas, they they are vast, seemingly unbounded. Mm-hmm. They're more they're more the true country than the the white townships, which look kind of almost like small enclaves. Can you tell me about the ways that you you sought to depict and reflect the country in where the fruit falls and and these interactions with the country? You're good at deep reading, aren't you? (laughs) They let Um, me do this every week on the radio. (laughs) They wow. Oh, you should write write reviews as well. Um, I I think yeah, I like I like what you've said there. They're they're not they're not quite on the fringe. They they are definitely embedded in country because everything's country the whole continent the skies the the seas i think also what i was trying to do was not was not to portray the outback in the way it's normally portrayed um it's this dead endless space um i wanted it to be alive i wanted people to be clearly connected to that and and then these towns that are built there and they're not connected. They're, they've almost built up walls um, and, and closed themselves in like you've picked up. And again, I've not answered your question properly. 
No, I think you've I think you've actually beautifully evoked um, something of the space that the reader moves around. I, I wondered then also mm-hmm. about those those ways of connecting with the country, as well as those ways of. Um, I guess being separated from the country, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking a little bit about the white characters that are oh. are variously, variously kind and well-meaning, but perhaps misguided down to, through to the downright evil. Um, uh, but let's let's start with the ideas of around kind but misguided. At the beginning of the story, we meet Maeve, Bridget's grandmother, and she mm-hmm. is an immigrant, and she has arrived. Um, with cuttings from an apple tree and establishes an orchard. Later on in the story, um, Bridget meets Omer and Bethel. And Uh they, uh, Omer also has arrived in Australia as a refugee from the Second World War with a cutting Uh of an olive tree. Uh And in these spaces, despite there are, you know, Maeve has some very problematic ideas around storytelling that have, have affected Bridget. But within these spaces, under these trees, Bridget can find solace. And I wondered about that, that, that splicing, the, the way that a cutting can be spliced and can become a part of the land. Was there something uh, allegorical there about the way lands and people can be brought together, about giving and sharing of the land? Have I drawn well, it's not there? Christian mythology like some reviewer wrote. Oh, gosh, I um, didn't see that, no. I don't know, <laughs> um, But it is, I mean, tr- trees trees are interesting. They can be transported in the seed or in the cutting and then, you know, nurtured, put in the right place. They they become huge and, and they give fruit. I mean, there's the apple orchard of, of Bridget's childhood and then, like you said, the olive, the olive one. But they also are planting down roots. So both those women planted those trees and they put down roots in the new country while also connecting themselves to where they've come from. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's nice that the story then, they were, they were able to share stories next to those trees. But, I mean, more of herself, like she, she, she arrived on the wings of the pandemic you know, the, the, the Spanish flu. So she, you know, she came with her own trauma too. If I can contrast then those two characters who arrived and as, as you... Um, as we sort of talked about there, they've spliced, put down roots. The trees are perhaps symbolic of that with a far more diabolical character in uh, Von Wolf, who we learn has never been sympathetic. Um, and he, no. he, he in, his, in his wealth, has never had to has never had to give. He's always had self-sufficient wealth. So he's always sought to entertain mm-hmm. himself to, um, to take. And as a photographer... He, he kind of creates hideous reflections of the world as he would like to see it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of skirting around this. This is, this is a, a, an incredibly traumatic um, section of where the fruit falls, and I don't want to take anything away yeah. from the reader's experience of that. Um, but in, in that character, we see someone who only takes but also tries to create these twisted reflections, and, and that seems like a much... Mm-hmm a much different uh, reflection of that idea of, of settlement and taking over land. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, he's got his backstory and I, in that backstory, I wanted to be really careful not to be empathetic towards him, but 
he still has his backstory with his own trauma and he comes from a position of power uh, and wealth. With him as well, what I wanted to do, I mean, and yes, that, that part is the most violent in the whole book and I wanted to really min- minimalise the violence because a lot of times in books, violence against women becomes almost like a lazy trope. It's like, well, here's some violence that happens to this person, thus they've changed. Um, and I didn't want to really do that, but that particular scene, I, you know, I couldn't cut out. I kept changing, I kept cutting out, kept putting back in. Um, and as you know, it's basically the title of the book. Um, but I wanted to be careful in that. And that's why I brought in photography rather as, as a different form of violence than, than, um, than, say, sexual violence or assault. And it ended up, I think, quite powerful. It's like, wow. You know, this does pack a lot in this form of violence and then it's replicated later when the second major antagonist towards the end, Victoria, confronts, replicates. Well, it doesn't replicate that, that violence, but he admires that violence that was wonderful. So it's a bit odd. I don't know how people were going to receive it because, you know, it's probably a different way of, of writing a villain. It, as, I, as I mentioned, it was it was incredibly traumatic to read, and I want to be I want to be careful about how I say that because it's it's yeah. it's a trauma that I am trying to understand from without, um, and nothing mm-hmm. that nothing that in my life I'm ever going to be subject to. But it was incredibly effective, also in that it it, it gave us a villain. It was I, I actually didn't mm. find anything ambiguous about von Wolf's villainy, and that was that's that's something that perhaps you need to as a reader tether yourself to to. As, as yeah. you as you travel with characters, you need a, a, a hard point to say. Well, this is this is villainy, and I can feel unambiguous about that. Um, mm. we, we haven't mm. actually directly addressed but, this, but one of the oh, sorry, the, please. The violence, the violence is racial violence. Though I mean, it's clearly racial violence to me. Mm. Yes, ab- absolutely, and that's that's what I thought we could just touch on because we haven't discussed one of the. I guess one of the things that, that Von Wolf uses in his photography to commit that violence, and that is that the twins, um, Victoria and Maggie, uh, despite being twins, present. They, they look very different to each other. How mm-hmm. did you – well, I don't, I don't want to overread this, but was, the, was there something about the way the twins were received by characters in the novel that – shaped their personalities as they moved along because they grow up to be quite different personalities as well. Yes, yes. So I wanted to show that, that, you know, the way that the world perceived them was very different, even though they were sisters and they had the same upbringing and they come from the same background, but because they, they look different, the world perceived them different. And so they, they were pushed through that world in a different way. And, their mother wasn't able to protect them or, or to help them build strength to push back against that because she was never given it herself and she never learned it herself. So they then had to learn it. And so when they get, well, even before then, when they meet Gabriel and then when they get to town, they meet different characters that enable them to, to fill in those gaps of, of their learning that they didn't have while growing up. And, so yeah, it does touch on a bit on colorism and how how people are perceived differently 
again, I, I find myself wondering which thread, which thread do we pull on next? Um, Oh, can we talk? Can we talk a little bit about time? We touched on the ideas of time when we were discussing that this is a saga. It, it travels across generations, and mm-hmm. there is a sense, I guess, that you were never going to be able to write a story that solves problems because you are situating this within a history that that is understood and where you're, you're describing mm-hmm. you're describing battles that are still being fought today. But there is a moment early in, um, and I've just I've just popped down the quote, and I've foolishly not written more more context into it. But it's you, the the quote that I've written down is they were experts at waiting, and this idea of of time and timelessness. It for me that line I wrote it down because it had echoes of Kev Carmody's um, line from the the song from Little Things, Big Things Grow. Mm. How does time operate in this in this book for you in terms of? the time that we we travel with this family, but also where that sits in a much longer story? I don't know if that's simple to answer. I mean, number one, both sagas and magic realism, uh, time plays a major role in those sort of writings. And time is within country. So, so, you know, there's there's the bits there of the inland sea and and um, there's megafauna and there's references to all these things, so time, time is circular. What else did I want to say about time? <laughs> is that also reflected but, um, in in the characters? I mean, there are there are characters that arrive and depart seemingly uh, seemingly suddenly, but there is a sense that they they remain despite no longer being physically present. Well, I suppose they remain by their action. I mean, mm. if you look at the character on the bus and the small action she did there that the repercussions of that last for a very very long time Mm. um and and that's true of the world i was thinking actually though of the the more positive influences and and as bridget as maggie as victoria discover family and and kinship relations um Mm -hmm. many times they will depart from people that they have grown to love and you'll mm. you'll have a line that is a, a sort of a variation on they won't see this person again, but that person mm. that person remains in the narrative and they're constantly referred back to. And I I saw that really kind they of do. positive influence of of um yeah yeah time yeah. And it's often in moments when they're really low that that they bring up stories or memories of those people that they know they'll probably never see again, and and that helps you know. So, so that's about how story, story whether it's story that's embedded in in country or what's been passed down from to us, um, it helps us through those hard hard moments. And also that the story connects them to their family and culture and country, even though you know they've become disconnected by no fault of their own. And I think it probably gives the readers hope that they can pull all those threads together and and find home and go back. You mentioned idea of time being cyclical a little bit earlier. Can we maybe then come full circle mm-hmm. on our conversation and end where the story begins with the title, where, where the fruit falls? Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that in the in the section of the book where we meet the, the, the villainous Von Wolf, mm-hmm. um, that he, he uses that epithet 
but, and he uses it very much in a in a, a racially charged and derogatory way. Mm. But I wondered if there was mm-hmm. an ironic sense to that as well, because the idea of the fruit not falling far from the tree can reflect around ideas of family and and remaining mm. close, remaining close yeah. to those kinship ties. Can you t- just talk yeah. talk a little bit about the way the the title operates in that way as we as we finish up? Well, I think I set that up right from the beginning with with. Um, more springing clips, uh, cuttings of apples over in her journey. Um, a lot of the stories that she tells are of, of apples, and she gives that necklace necklace to um, Bridget to take with her of the apples. So, so all through the story, I come back to to fruit, to apples, and and even um, up on country with Bridget meeting her her grandparents, and there's the blood apple there. So I've joined those together and then there's the apple tree, which is in the violent scene. So, so both probably both birds and fruit ties it all together and connects, connects them to family and to the past and also giving hope of the future. And that is where the fruit falls. We are discussing that title. It is the title of Karen Wilde's novel and it is absolutely terrific Karen I mean I've I've jumped around all over my notes and I suspect that you and I could have a conversation in six months time about this book and it would be a very different conversation because it's constantly revealing things to me even as we speak Uh, I am speaking with Mm -hmm. Karen Wilde we are discussing where the fruit falls thank you so much for joining me on the show today well thanks for having me and thanks for the challenging questions That's it for this great conversation with Karen Wilde. Karen's new novel is Where the Fruit Falls, and it's out now through University of Western Australia Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. And look, I just want to say a thank you to everyone who listens and for occasionally putting up with some irregularities in the presenting. There have been cicadas, washing machines. It's all part of the, the magic and adventure of recording at home. So thank you for sticking with me. When you do get a little bit of extra noises, uh, shout out to Rocket the Cat, who also loves to jump in the microphone and meow. If you want to keep up with us, we're on social media. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And if you click subscribe, there's a new great conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And as always, I hope you have a happy week of reading. Till then, bye now.